AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello and welcome to AT&T Threat Track for February 10th, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. We're joined today by Jim Clausing online. Welcome, Jim. Thanks. Good to be here. John Hogeboom. Back again. <laughs> and Stan Nurlov. Welcome back, Stan. Yeah, thank you. Great. Let's get right into it here. And uh, first thing I just wanted to share with you here today is that today is Safer Internet Day. Now, this is actually uh, an organization that's been set up by uh, co-funded activity in the European Union. And it's a website. You can go visit the website and it has resources for children, parents and teachers on topics that would be relevant to using the internet in a safe way, just as a, as a, a personal user, particularly focused toward uh, children. And uh, there are certainly are resources associated with, um, uh, with parents and, and just uh, adult users as well. So topics like child abuse images, uh, cyberbullying, filtering and monitoring of parental controls, mobile phones, online gambling, online gaming and the hazards that might be associated with that, or perhaps some good things associated with it as well, sexting, spamming, phishing, farming, viruses, and malware. So lots of good topics to uh, learn more. And uh, the website's available to uh, go and uh, take advantage of. As I said, it's a uh, co-funded activity in the European Union, but the internet's a global space. And so uh, we should expect that um, most all of the activities or information there would be uh, applicable around the world. And with that, let's go and take a look at some of the things that we do to uh, prevent malware. And uh, Jim, I guess uh, yesterday was, uh, or today's Microsoft Tuesday, right? Uh, the uh, Patch Tuesday. So uh, tell us what we got. Today is Patch Tuesday. It's the uh, second bunch of patches in 2015. There are a total of nine bulletins released today. Uh, three of them Microsoft rated as critical. Mm -hmm. a, a couple of the important ones that I wanted to, to highlight today, uh, MS-15-009 is this month's IE updates. It addresses 41 CVEs, so there's a lot of stuff that they're patching in IE this month, including uh, the critical remote code execution vulnerability and an ASLR bypass. That's the address space layout randomization bypass. So if if the bad guys can bypass that, they can um, you know target particular things in particular areas of memory. So the ASLR, that's, a, uh, that's basically an intent to randomize where things are located in memory so that a buffer overflow is much more difficult. Is that correct? Well, yeah, yeah and, and heap spraying and that kind of stuff is it's a little more difficult to find your uh, injected code. Right. Uh, the, the ASLR bypass, by the way, is the one uh, vulnerability out of the whole bunch where there is a limited exploit in the wild already so and so these uh, IE patches are critical they affect IE 6 through IE 11 
basically that's this is one you definitely want to apply quickly. Right. The other one that I wanted to highlight today uh, was MS15-011. And this one is a remote code execution vulnerability against the group policy. And it basically what this one is is if you're in a, if you're on a domain configured system, so a, you know a laptop or a desktop that's configured for a domain, and you can, and the bad guys can get you to attach to a, con, a network that they control. Mm -hmm. The laptops are actually is especially going to be vulnerable to this particular one. When your uh, laptop then attempts to connect back to the domain controller. If you exploit this vulnerability, you know, if the bad guys have the things set up properly to attempt to exploit this vulnerability, basically they can take over, even without knowing any of the domain credentials or anything, they can get total control of your workstation or your laptop. Wow. So this one is, is pretty serious. And unfortunately, I was looking down in the workarounds section of the bulletin, and there are no workarounds for this one. Um, so that those are two of the three that are listed as critical this month. The other bulletins cover Office 2007, 2010, 2013, including you know, SharePoint Server and Office Web Apps. There's one in there that's a TIFF processing vulnerability. It seems like these uh, graphic format things have just don't ever go away. I mean, we've been seeing <laughs> vulnerabilities in those since, I don't know, 2006 or something. Right. Yep. There's a, one that's a true type font processing vulnerability. So if, you know, if you can get somebody to browse to a website that's got an embedded true type font uh, crafted thing, you can exploit them that way. Mm -hmm. There's a, also uh, the Bulletin 17, I believe, MS15-017, is a vulnerability in the Virtual Machine Manager. I don't recall that I've seen patches for that in the past, uh, so this was a, a new one. If you're, if you're using um, Microsoft's Virtual Machine Manager, uh, this is a local privilege escalation so if you if you're on if you log into a system that's running this virtual machine manager and running um, you know embedded virtual machines uh, there's a way I, I don't remember the details of how to exploit it but mm -hmm. um, you can escalate your privilege to get you know administrator level access so right. anyway you know, another month another nine bulletins like I said the, the biggies to my mind, were the group policy one for um, domain-enabled systems, and the Internet Explorer one because it covers so many vulnerabilities. Uh, like mm -hmm. I said, 41 CVEs are covered by the IE patches this month. All right, that's quite a collection. John, you had a question. Oh yeah, I was going to ask you, Jim. Do you, do we know on the group policy uh, one there is that like a rogue domain controller or something that an attacker would set up or are they actually exploiting like a bug in some of the operating system software? My read of the bulletin, and I, I don't have a whole lot of details on it, but my read of the bulletin was that um, it basically 
in the process of intercepting the the attempt, and, I, and it, I'm not sure whether it would take a full-blown rogue domain controller or just you know intercepting and responding to the, the queries. You know, as the laptop tries to reach back to the domain controller that it won't find because it's not on that network. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it wasn't clear to me whether you needed a full-blown rogue uh, domain controller to exploit it or not, but it's it's in the way that the um, the workstation or the laptop goes back to it queries back to the domain controller and to retrieve group policy um, group policy objects to be a, applied to the local mm -hmm. workstation. Okay. Well, so it, I mean, you mentioned no workarounds. It sounds like the workaround or the if there is <laughs> at this point is to just be careful where you connect your well laptop. yeah right right I mean yeah it's, there there's no technical workaround to prevent it uh, so yeah if you don't connect to if you leave the workstation on your corporate network well then you're probably okay unless you unless somebody sets up rogue domain controllers within your network but. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's it, it's be careful where you plug into. Yeah, public Wi-Fi, coffee right. places, yeah. things oh, like that would right. be dangerous. Right, yeah. those would be the places to avoid. Public Wi-Fi, um, or even hotel Wi-Fi, hotel wi networks until you get this patched. Mm -hmm. Or even my house. <laughs> even Stan's house. I don't know why. Why is your house so uh, malicious? <laughs> <laughs> because Stan's connected. <laughs> so uh, <it's laughs> thank you, Jim. And uh, so we're going to go over to Stan here because he obviously got maliciousness on his mind here. And uh, so there was a recent article. Uh, actually, this was featured on 60 Minutes about yeah. hacking cars. And uh, we thought it would be useful to talk about this topic. Yes. Uh, actually, coming off of last week where we talked about one particular manufacturer and some of the issues that they already patched, uh, it was interesting to see that on 60 Minutes, uh, uh, this topic was featured yeah. again. And now it was healthy to see. You know, it did the last one, this was uh, BMW, where they yeah. had basically announced the patching of some uh, of some software. Yes. Now they did that over there, right? Yes. Was, they they applied the patch over there, which was also another uh, strong, yeah, uh, another good sign mm -hmm. for the industry, at least from their perspective. You know, obviously right. they figured out that hey, it would be nice to be able to uh, patch things over the air, and they had a way to do it. Yeah. Um, so hopefully that's signed, right? <laughs> yeah. Signed over there. Up well, there. Uh, <laughs> the the thing is, I think uh, originally it probably wasn't. Yeah. So which was the problem? And mm. uh, that was last week. Um, so in I think this report uh, that was featured on 60 Minutes, uh, I think they're trying to just call attention to the state of the way things are in the car mm -hmm. industry. You know, there's so many manufacturers out there, and each one has their own. A way to engineer things and their own way to engineer security and mm -hmm. there's not a lot of transparency about how that's done there's a lot of data that's collected by the cars as you drive around you know some of that is stored but as the cars become more connected some of that gets sent to the servers of the of the different manufacturers so they can improve customer experience and things like that mm -hmm. but um, it's not transparent to the consumer how these features work how to uh, uh, I guess maybe disable them or, you know, by disabling them, maybe they're disabling the whole car, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's just one part of the report. And then the other part of the report is, they, you know, they talk about how there's a lot of components now in the car that, that talk wirelessly. Um, like one thing that, that's 
pretty wireless in your car, I think is the TPM, the tire pressure monitor system. Mm -hmm. uh, that uses a wireless protocol. And so all of those kinds of things, they have potential for uh, misuse or abuse. And I think it was interesting to see in the 60 Minutes report, you know, some of the conceptual attacks against the car. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, you might be able to attack the brake system or, or uh, open the doors remotely, stuff mm -hmm. like that. So I know that was all featured. I think one of the important things here is that, uh, you know, we're trying to, I guess there's some light being shed on the industry mm -hmm. uh, to show uh, that, hey, there might be a problem here. You know, maybe there is or maybe there isn't, but uh, maybe we need to pay more attention to it. Well, it's, it, it's healthy to scrutinize. Yes. That is to be paying attention. I mean, I think, I think that's going to move things further along. Uh, you know, just not to digress too far here, but, you know, one of the things that uh, I guess I've come, I've been talking for some time now about the internet of insecure things right. and more recently trying to make the distinction between what I describe as managed internet of things as opposed to unmanaged internet of things and trying to make some distinctions between the criteria or be, between the two one where these unmanaged devices they may have no patching process, let alone automatic pat patching processes. And even if they do have patching processes, a lot of them are firmware updates where you have to, you know, download a file and load it onto another, you know, sort of helper machine and load it in there, and then you reset it, and then you cross your fingers and hope the thing actually comes back and doesn't get bricked. And uh, it's a very inconvenient process. Whereas this is a case where we're seeing that the auto industry is getting it, or at least, you know, we, we can't generalize all the manufacturers to be the same. You said they, 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 they're all different doing this, right. potentially different things. Uh, but there are at least some that are paying attention to this and considering, you know, that you need to be able to do firmware updates right. or, or software updates and uh, make it transparent to users and have things uh, really being taken care of. And I know, you know, we've been involved in right. uh, helping the auto industry with the networking aspects of services and including the security aspects of things and making sure that uh, for the organizations that we're working with, that they uh, they get the good security around that to be able to facilitate doing things in, in an appropriate way. Not necessarily actually building applications themselves, right. you know, signing the applications, but uh, certainly from a networking point of view. One of the other things that we wanted to mention as part of this story was the report that Senator Markey released yesterday, I think it was. And one of the things that he highlights in that report is that, it, you know, while there, you know, we've seen some things that are, that are going well and are getting better, but there's, you know, one of his complaints is lack of uniformity. You know, the various manufacturers, you know, some have over-the-air updates that are signed. Some you have to get, you know, to get updates, you have to go into a shop and have a mechanic actually plug in, you know, so it's, you know, it's inconsistent across the industry. And that was, right. you know, one of the things that he highlighted in, in that report. And, you know, it, it's, it's that inconsistency, I think, that is, is the biggest concern. Um, hopefully, they'll, they're all getting better. They're all, hopefully, they're all taking you know, security into account. But. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, I, I think those inconsistencies are things that create, you know, that's a value proposition for the organizations that are doing a better job relative to others. And hopefully that comes out as uh, marketing opportunities for, for different manufacturers. I don't know that consistency is necessarily what we're looking for, 
I think uh, at least some prudency is, uh, is necessary. And, you know, as we do safety standards for a lot of things, I think we've already talked about the notion that, you know, there should be some safety standards associated with things that connect to the network. And, um, you know, if, uh, we, we talked about United Laboratories as being kind of a model, perhaps, as a way to, uh, to set up some standards so that devices could be certified as being, uh, you know, safety certified for connecting to a network. I think that would be perhaps a healthy, a healthy proposition. So, I mean, it needs to be investigated further to make sure that there, there are opportunities to do that in a prudent way. But I, I think that notion makes a lot of sense. And, you know, uh, if there's a safety recall in a car, you still have to take it to the manufacturer to get the part replaced. It's not as if uh, they have over there part replacement in cars. I'm being a little, you know, facetious here, but the, the point is is that, um, you know, network safety is uh, kind of fits into a similar category. So I wouldn't necessarily fault a car manufacturer for not uh, having over there software updates. Uh, by the same token, it cer certainly seems like a nice convenient feature convenience feature for uh, for an owner of the vehicle. So a marketing opportunity right, for right the manufacturers. I mean, Presumably they do it right. Yeah, that's that's fair statement. If my home router or my refrigerator, my smart refrigerator crashes, probably not a big deal. But certainly a car where not only your life, but other people on the road, um, yeah. you know, there's a potential for, you know, actual it, lives to be lost you yeah the wanna, notion you want to make sure you carefully think really, this out yeah the notion of safety standards really do uh you know that they, they they are real practical in this in the scenario of automobiles right and uh so it's all the more reason there should be some you know it, it, the notion of a united uh, excuse me an underwriter's laboratory uh, seal of approval for an automobile actually kind of makes sense. Yeah, it does. I think they could, you know, it is underwritten by the insurance industry, mm -hmm. and I suspect that that will probably take hold in that in that sense. Um, we'll, we'll have to see how it comes about. So, very yeah. good point. Well, interesting story there. Now, if I can digress for a moment here, Jim, you had uh, taken a look at uh, an article that Steve Bellavan had, had posted related to uh, encryption. Can you make a couple of comments about that? Right. This was a, a post that uh, that he did uh, end of last week, I think, or maybe over the weekend. Um, and it, it was entitled "The Uses and Abuses of Cryptography." And uh, one of the, the biggest point that he makes here is, you know, one of the people always like to say, "Well, you know, encrypt the data, then it'll be secure," but that's not entirely true because if you've got databases that are always in use, then the decryption key has got to be someplace. It's got to be, you know, in in RAM in the OS or in the in the database management system itself mm -hmm. because you're having to decrypt it to you know to do your work. So uh, the one of the points that he makes in bold here is. Encryption is most useful when OS protections cannot work. You know, it's, encryption is not the magic bullet that is going to solve all the problems. Mm -hmm. um, you need other OS protections. Uh, you need the application level protections. You know, encryption works great on things like, you know, disks of, of laptops because, you know, once you've shut it down, then then any information that's on there is secure. 
but while the system is operating, you know, if you can get malware on there, you know, the, the full disk encryption doesn't do you any good. So it's, you know, his, his main point here is encryption is a useful tool. It's not the magic bullet. You know, you need, you can't say encryption is going to solve all your problems. You know, encryption has its place as one of the tools in your you know, tool belt. Right. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it, it, encryption's, uh, I guess, kind of analogous to running around with a hammer. If you're, you know, trying to drive screws, it's not going to work quite right. And uh, it, it's a, uh, a situation where, as you were saying, even if the database is encrypted, if you don't have good access management around that, then the database is either going to, you only have two choices, either the database is unaccessible at all, or the wrong people are going to potentially have access to it. So you really have to have the right tools and the right circumstances in order to provide good security. Security takes thought. And uh, you know, it's, there are certainly templates of applications that can be built around the notion of including security, access control mechanisms, locking down the, uh, the platforms, and even physical security around that. But ultimately, it takes thought around what type of application it is and, and putting a good design in place. Right. If, if it were easy, we'd be out of a job. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's true. But, uh, and we'd be obviously able to take more applications, maybe. Right. Well, there's still mistakes in the implementations as well. That's, uh, I guess, the other aspect that needs to be, uh, needs to be considered. Uh, hence the need for patches on a regular basis and the fact that zero days get discovered. So uh, before I digress too far here, back to you, John, on the, uh, I guess, uh, more spying activity going on. Right? Yeah, this is another interesting one in that um, they picked up some APT malware that's actually um, impacting Apple iOS devices, right. which is uncommon mm -hmm. for the most part. You know, Android, Generally we, uncommon, we hear yes. about a lot, but um, iOS, not so much. And uh, so to set the stage and kind of go back in time a little bit, back in October of 2014, not that long ago really, just a few months back, um, uh, I think it was Trend Micro who reported on Operation Pawnstorm, mm -hmm. which is, I believe it's a, they believe, they believe I believe, that it's a Russian-oriented uh, actor set here. And um, they're targeting military governments, defense industrial base, media organizations. And what they, their modus operandi is they'll do spearfish emails, they'll have phishing websites that will, so they might fish you to go to a website that looks like the Outlook web access for your mm -hmm. company, which is a, another one to be wary of if you see that, or you had to land at an Outlook web access page that looks like your company, but it's not. Um, and then they have some malicious high frame stuff with exploit kit things in there. Um, but the, the crux of Operation Pawnstorm was, unlike a lot of the very targeted activities where they might spearfish just a few people, um, it's called Pawnstorm because they will actually try to uh, infect several lots of people within mm -hmm. that organization uh, with the intent that if I can get a lot of these pawns compromised, I might be able to either get the one I'm interested in or use one of those to... You know, get administrative rights, crack right. a password, and then laterally move over to a target that you're really interested in within that organization. At the very least, they probably buy some time that is right. going to take a while to clean out a whole bunch of infected devices. And so, in the meantime, they, they potentially have some opportunities. Right. But... Um, right. So, now there's a little shift. Uh, recently involved in the same actor set, they've detected this X agent iOS malware. Uh, it's mm -hmm. iOS underbar xagent A and xagent B. One is just a piece of malware. The other is a version that is kind of hidden inside a game 
Mm -hmm. uh, I forget what the name of the game was. Um, if you run it on iOS 7, it's completely hidden. It won't even have a little button there for you. But if it's on iOS 8, it will be visible. Mm -hmm. So they probably wrote it back when iOS 7 was around. And it's not whatever forward compatible for their little hiding capabilities that they mm -hmm. put in there. Has a lot of the common types of functionality that you would expect in a phone type uh, piece of malware. So it can access your text messages, contacts, pictures, geolocation, where you're actually located, uh, voice recording, turn on the microphone, record it, and send it to you so you can hear mm -hmm. it. The kind of rub on this one is they're not entirely sure of the infection vector, although they have so some. Ask about. They have some hints. So uh, first of all, they're. They have at least one case where they see the phone is not jailbroken, mm -hmm. and it was uh, utilizing Apple's ad hoc provisioning. So if you're a developer of an app, you can do this ad hoc provisioning for, I think, 100 or less devices, and it allows you to test your app on your phone you know, prior to putting it onto the App Store. And so it, it's not necessarily signed at that point, is that right? I don't know, if it's, I don't know enough about how okay. that actual developer program works and whatnot, but... Um, uh, you can apparently, I think you put a list of device IDs in there uh, that it's allowed to install on, and then okay. if you can steer somebody to a URL that's on the internet, it will actually install uh, using this ad hoc provisioning. But I don't mm -hmm. really know enough about exactly how that works because I haven't really done Apple uh, app development myself. Mm -hmm. um, but they've seen that that has been in play with this. Uh, another possibility that they speculate is maybe via USB connection. So you plug your, your phone in, and now a Windows-type machine that has some other malware on it might be able to kind of laterally move over to the device. USB device USB. infection. Right, vector. something like that. Um, but I don't think Which, is, which is, had been documented before, I think. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Yes, been, yeah. yeah, there's some other, there's lots of other various types of, like there was a Thunderbolt vulnerability mm -hmm. for uh, via the Mac or something, too. You have physical access to the device and right. secure, all security bets are off. Right, right. <laughs> so anyway, an interesting one in that iOS was, um, you know, in play, and uh, that might help you understand the target set too a little bit of who would use iOS devices versus Android or versus other device sets. Um, mm -hmm. That they were, that they took enough initiative to try to build a piece of malware specifically for that platform, which other people have not really, right? Because it's difficult. It's probably not, not surprising they want to attack Apple, but what's interesting to me, which is the advanced piece, is the infection vectors because it's such a close platform. Yes. That the fact, and we don't need, you know, apparently, you know, we're just speculating here what the infection vectors might be. Right. Well, and it, and it, yeah, that would, I, in my opinion is the greatest concern. If they, they basically are able to, uh, you know, trick somebody into into installing something that uh, off market, that's one thing. But if they're able to actually exploit the device and uh, get the thing installed in the background. That's, uh, that's another matter altogether. Yeah. Well, the example they showed actually just had on your phone something where it said, like, tap here to install, like, in the browser or something. You click mm -hmm. it, and it uses this ad hoc provisioning mechanism right. to put it onto the phone. Even if uh, I'm not quite sure what details you need about that device, or if any. Like, do you need to know its UUID and put that into some config file ahead of time so that it will be able to install on that device or, or what? I'm not quite yeah. sure how that all works, but anyway. Well, Hopefully some uh, additional information will come out about that in the future because I think that is an important precedent. This is, this is one of the cases where um, it, it's not the typical scenario that we've, uh, that right. we've seen in the past. Right. And, uh, and if it works, it's likely going to develop Yeah, we don't <laughs> want this to become a bigger, yeah, we don't want to see this all the time. All right. Right.
All right, so let's take a look at the uh, internet weather for the last week or so here. Uh, first item is scan probes on port 53 TCP, that's DNS. I'm showing a year's worth of data here because I wanted to uh, kind of you know, lay out the, uh, the situation. And as you can see, for a good portion of the last year, this kind of probing activity has been going on that's been uh, you know, causing lots of alerts. Pretty much most of the probes here are from a single source in China. It's been going pretty consistently. I didn't go back and check the entire year to see if it was the same source. It may have changed over time, but certainly in the recent past, it's been consistently from a single source. That source is also probing on some other ports. Port 21, that's FTP, port 22, SSH, port 23, Telnet, port 25, SMTP, so mail transfer protocol, port 80, that's uh, web, port 443, encrypted web, 3389, that's uh, remote desktop protocol, and last but not least, 8080, which is generally used uh, for proxying activity. So uh, clearly this is uh, going around and looking for a number of uh, different types of servers. Uh, a lot of them suggest perhaps getting data, remote access, or, uh, or unauthorized access in the systems. It's not exactly clear what the uh, motive for DNS, except perhaps to, uh, to be able to capture zone transfers and um, uh, get an idea of what the uh, landscape is uh, from a DNS point of view. But in any case, if you witness this type of activity, you might want to block this, uh, this activity because it's, uh, it does not appear to be up to something good. Uh, next item here is scan probes on port 143 TCP, that's IMAP, that's uh, Internet Mail Access Protocol. This actually, mostly the, uh, the dark blocks that you see close for, further to the right, we're looking at 60 days worth of data here, uh, is attributable to a U.S. university. So I consider that to be innocuous. Uh, this activity from this university is pretty well known, relatively well documented, and so uh, it's not something that... I feel you need to be terribly concerned about. There are other ports that this university has, uh, has been probing as well. I didn't go through the trouble to document it or share them all here, but there are a number of other probes, sets of probing activity that you may witness associated with the yeah. U U.S. University. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, well, I think it's kind of interesting. I think last week we talked about IMAPS on 993, and a couple of weeks ago we talked about POP3, mm -hmm. and it's you know, looking at the shapes of the graph, the, and I, I know it's from the same organization that's doing the scanning, but it's very similar patterns, and it seems to be going through the the, the email protocols here now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so they've been basically, uh, I think, looking for, I think it's just even looking more for the, than just the services. My impression is they're looking for uh, very easy to access uh, platforms, but uh, I'm speculating a little bit on that, uh, on that topic. Next item here is scan probes on port 8009 TCP. That's Apache JServe protocol. John, are you familiar with this particular uh, protocol? A little bit. I don't remember the exact details of what okay. happens on 8009. Um, you know, I looked up the description of it. I wasn't particularly familiar with it because I'm not a web developer, but it, it says that it can proxy inbound requests from a web server through an application server that sits behind the web server. So it's basically a reverse proxy kind of application. You know, most of the probes here, again, from a single address in China, not the same as the previous one. And uh, that same address is also probing on port uh, 5800, that's uh, virtual network computing, 5900, which is also associated with, uh, with virtual ne network computing. Uh, 6379, I wasn't familiar with this one previously. It's um, 
Redis serialization protocol, which uh, Redis is an application that provides caching things. We're going to look at that a little more closely. Port 8090, which is an alternate port for HTTP, and then 11.2.11, which is uh, basically a memory caching uh, protocol as well, which uh, I can't say that I understand fully, but yeah, Redis is also a memory caching yes, it is a, database, fact, uh, right? Right, it's like a basically uh, in-memory database uh, application. So, what I thought would be useful is that you know, particularly because I wasn't particularly familiar with one, is take a, a little closer look at that one. Again, we're looking at 90 days of activity in this case, and uh, you can see that that probing activity has been going on fairly regularly as well. Pretty much uh, focused, uh, you know, associated with this uh, this same source of activity. Redis is a NoSQL database which stores everything in RAM as a key-value pairs, and by default, it's a text-oriented interface that's uh, reachable on port 6379 without authentication. And actually, this quote is from a website of somebody that was actually doing a little bit of Redis hacking activity and demonstrating how uh, how easy it was to get into it. And so, uh, I, just a snapshot of the website where this guy goes into some uh, relatively detailed documentation. Uh, he was actually uh, trying to hack Redis uh, via HTTP requests, and he, you know, discusses how tolerant the protocol is and how you can throw a bunch of uh, things at it, and it uh, it'll respond if you get it right. So. <laughs> Um, that's, uh, I guess, one of the things. If you're using this sort of application, you want to be uh, kind of paying attention to the uh, the security attributes of it, make sure that there it's doing as you'd intended for it to do, and not other things. Right. You know, that's one of the things that's easy to overlook in a, in testing processes. You know, the tendency is to test for the functionality to see if it does what you want it to do. The whole notion of security testing is trying to figure out what things it will do that you didn't intend for it to do, which is a much wider field of activities and uh, often a challenge. Next item is uh, top 10 most probed ports. And uh, at the top of the list here, we have port 135 TCP. We're going to take a little bit of a closer look at that. We haven't done that in a while. Followed by port 443 TCP. 443 is uh, has jumped up significantly in the uh, the rankings. It was it jumped up uh, 11 slots to the number two spot here. It turns out that was uh, associated with the same university we were referring to earlier. Uh, it was just uh, sort of a sort of a spike in activity, so uh, perhaps innocuous. And then followed by port 22 TCP, port 23 TCP. This is uh, you know scanning around for Internet of Things. Port 9064, which is a proxy application, uh, 1900 UDP that's associated with uh, a simple service discovery protocol, often associated with reflection denial service attacks, as is port 19 UDP, which is two slots down from that. Uh, we have port 445 TCP, followed by 53 UDP, again, often associated with reflection attacks, that is 53 UDP. And then uh, last but not least, 3389 TCP, that's remote desktop protocol. As I said, uh, looking at the scan probes on port 135 TCP, this is a DC endpoint resolution associated with Microsoft applications. We're looking at 180 days of activity here. The probing activity is actually taking place from a US registered provider but with Chinese registered addresses associated with it. So I think it actually physically is located in the United States, uh, but it has some uh, Chinese registration associated with it. I'm not sure exactly why that's the case, but when I dug around a little bit about that uh, provider a little bit further, there are numerous forum postings uh, describing spamming activities, you know, mass spamming activities and uh, nefarious activities such as that. So 
my guess is this activity is up to no good. Now, you really shouldn't have port 135 exposed to the internet anyway. No. So, uh, I mean, there have been n numerous uh, issues associated with that in the past. And as Jim was pointing out earlier, we still have vulnerabilities in through tight fonts and graphics formats. And so we shouldn't rule out the possibility of uh, still having vulnerabilities in uh, applications like this as well. So don't expose them uh, unnecessarily. Next item here is uh, the most sources doing the probing. And uh, at the top of the list, port 23, which is that botnet activity scanning for the Internet of Things. This is the unmanaged Internet of Things as we were talking about earlier, followed by port 445. And uh, actually, the rest of the ports here aren't even interesting, so I'm not going to bore you with it. We will take a little bit of a closer look at port 23 TCP. And we're actually in a little bit of a lull in terms of the number of sources doing the scanning. I wouldn't get too comfortable about that. Uh, we've had lulls like this before. Uh, for example, back in the uh, third week of December, we saw a little bit of a lull. I think uh, it was they were taking a break. Perhaps they are taking a little bit of a break again, or perhaps busy doing some other activities. But And it is still on the order of uh, 30 to 40,000 sources that we see, unique sources, in a given hour, which is on the order of about the size of the conficker scanning activity. So uh, relatively speaking, this is not small. Uh, some of the other activity where it was up around 150 plus thousand sources in a given hour, that was enormously large. And, and this is just looking at it from a, uh, you know, the perspective of our analysis platform. It's not necessarily a, a full scope analysis. There may be uh, quite a number of additional sources. So these botnets have been associated with uh, denial of service attacks. And uh, we would anticipate that, uh, that that sort of activity will continue. So. so that's our show for today. I'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, and we encourage that, uh, you can email us at threattrack at list.att.com. And you can find ThreatTrack on the ATT Tech channel. It's att.com slash threattrack. It's also available on YouTube and on iTunes as, a, uh, as an iPod. Uh, uh, I podcast, Plus, right? Podcast. podcast. Oh, <laughs> forgive me. Uh, <laughs> you can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. I'd like to thank you, Jim. Thanks, Stan. Thanks. Thank you, John. I'm Brian Rexrode. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on ATT Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of ATT or any other person or entity.